0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Alex Lichtenstein, Associate Professor of History at Indiana University. He is the co-author with Rick Halpern of the new book, Margaret Bourke White and the Dawn of Apartheid, published by Indiana University Press. Alex Lichtenstein, welcome to Working History.
1: Hi, Beth. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great.
0: You began as a historian of the U.S. South, focusing on intersections of race and labor and struggles for racial and social justice. And in your first book, Twice, the Work of Free Labor, which is still one of my favorites. You, you focused on the role of convict leasing and chain gang labor in the post-Civil War South. And now you're writing this book about South Africa in the 20th century. So can you sort of connect the two? What led you to uh, to pursue this line of, of inquiry?
1: In some ways, it's, it was somewhat accidental. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, writing about uh, forced black labor in the American South, one can immediately see the connections because the South African political economy under apartheid was rooted in, in coerced black labor. But in the late 90s, I was working on a book uh, to follow up to the Convict Labor book, and I'm still working on it, (laughs) on uh, labor, anti-communism, and civil rights in Florida. But Uh I got a little bored, and so I went on a Fulbright. And I went on a Fulbright to South Africa, um, in part because the connections to my interests in U.S. history seemed obvious, and in part because it just seemed like somewhere to go, obviously, Uh about five years after uh, the end of apartheid and the... the, uh, uh, election of Nelson Mandela. So it struck me at the time as a society going through the potential kind of revolutionary transformations that we're familiar with uh, of radical reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So I went there, and when I was there, I had the incredible fortune of co-teaching a, a seminar with Martin Legasic, a Marxist uh, a South African historian who just passed away about a month ago. And uh, although I co-taught the seminar, I really ended up taking the seminar. And that introduced me to this enormously fascinating world of South African history and historiography. Uh, and I was hooked. And so I started doing research and initially with the thought of trying to do something comparative, right. um, particularly in the 40s and the 50s. And I did an article on that. But, but the more I dug into it, it just was something new and uh, I really got sucked in. And so I've been back numerous times over the past decade to do more research in the archives there.
0: Right. And is there a lot of comparative work out there, or is, is that sort of uh, scarce right now?
1: Well, there was a lot of comparative work, uh, as most people know, in the 80s and 90s, starting with George Fredrickson's books and uh, a number of other people, Rick Halpern, mm-hmm. Peter Alexander. Myself, there was a whole special issue of the Journal of Southern African Studies uh, doing this comparison, which still I think stands as a very strong collection. That was probably 2004. Mm -hmm. There's still some interesting comparative work going on, but less than there used to be. One of the more interesting books is by Tiffany Willoughby Hurd that, for instance, has looked at the – kind of creation of whiteness in the American South and in South Africa in the 20s and the 30s. So I'd say there is still comparative work, but now there's much more interest in in what we would call the transnational. That is not just case A and B, South Africa, the U.S. or the U.S. South, but the connections between South Africa and the United States, intellectual, political, and social.
0: Right, right. So um, you, you mentioned Rick Halpern, who is your, co, your co-author on this right, book. So right. let's talk a little bit more about, about your work and maybe your collaboration with him. And maybe we could just start um, by you giving us a brief overview of the subject of your book in a lot of ways, Margaret Bork white and what it was about her that, that caught your attention and, and led you to do, the, to do this study.
1: Okay, so this is a nice example actually of the kind of what I would call transnational work that is not looking for a comparison but looking for people or events that, that cross the border between the U.S. and South Africa. So as most people know, Margaret Bourke White was one of the most famous photojournalists of her era. This is in the 30s and the 40s in particular, worked for Life magazine. Uh, never worked for the Farm Security Administration, although mm-hmm. many people imagine that she did because right. her photographs uh, are very similar to some of those, the ones she did in the U.S. South, particularly in the in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. But uh, both Rick and I had come across, I think independently, this fascinating photograph that she took of a pair of gold miners in South Africa in 1950. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's it's too bad. I don't know whether you can put it up in conjunction with the, the podcast or not, but it's a very striking image. And I think it's one that's familiar to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's two African miners standing at the bottom of the mine, drenched in sweat, right. and kind of staring at the camera. Is this
0: the one that's on the cover of the book? Yes, it's okay, on the right. cover okay. of the book.
1: Uh-huh. And it's an iconic image that we see, lots of people see. Right. And so Rick and I were both very curious about whether this was the only photograph that she took in South Africa? Okay. Clearly wasn't. Uh, so, what else there was? And um, it turns out she did a pair of very interesting photo stories for Life magazine in 1950. So, this is the moment in which the apartheid state is consolidating itself. The mm-hmm. Afrikaner nationalist government has been elected in 1948. And also, what's interesting, of course, it's a moment in which Jim Crow is at least if not breaking down yet, is is being subjected to its final assaults in the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that struck us as an interesting moment. And we also were interested in Bork White as a figure because she, on the one hand, is often celebrated for very aestheticized photographs of machinery and industrial production, which are quite beautiful. I think most labor historians certainly are familiar with them. But often not recognized as effectively for her social photography uh, of human beings, of workers, of farmers. And yet those are very powerful images. So we wanted to also highlight more of those. And we discovered that there really were hundreds of photographs that she took in South Africa and uh, highly politicized photographs at that. She often has been dismissed as kind of a Uh, political wannabe. Uh Uh, But in fact, I think she's someone who comes very much out of the popular front era with those sort of politics in the 30s and the 40s.
0: Right. And so why did she go to South Africa? Because, you know, you had mentioned that in the 1950s and nineteen fifty in the United States, there's there are increasing challenges to Jim Crow in the South. And so it seems like that would be equal equal fodder for her, really, in some ways to, you know, to use that as a, as a place to, to be photographing. So why did she end up in South Africa versus, say, somewhere in the U.S. South? And <clears throat> what was happening there that really
1: drew her there versus somewhere else? Well, I mean, the simple answer is Life magazine sent her there. Okay. And, the, uh-huh. and it's not clear to me from the archival record whether she chose her stories or whether they sent her there. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it made a lot of sense in terms of, so one of the things we do in the book is we trace kind of her itinerary, and particularly the series of stories that she did before she went to South Africa. I mean, there are many going all the way back to the 30s, but there's Mm -hmm. three in particular that I think we concluded were important. First, at the end of World War II, she is present at the liberation of Buchenwald. Okay. Okay. So, with Patton's Army, and she takes some absolutely horrific, but you know, powerful, stunning pictures of the uh, uh, prisoners at Buchenwald at the mm. moment of their release, and also of murdered prisoners. So she has, you know, photographs of stacks of corpses and so forth. So that was a very profound moment for her. And also she published a lot of these in Life magazine and a profound moment for sensitizing Americans to the legacy of the Holocaust and the significance of kind of post-war human rights crusades, right? Right, So that's a very important moment. Next she went and was fascinated by, and I know in this case went because she wanted to, to India during the decolonization moment, right? So she Mm -hmm. knew Gandhi, she photographed Gandhi, she photographed Nehru, she photographed the horrors of communal violence and partition in 1947. Mm-hmm, so those mm-hmm. also powerful photographs, and she was drawn there both because of her hope for kind of a new decolonized world, but also shocked by the horrors unleashed by communal and um, yeah, and ethnic violence. Mm-hmm. So those two moments, I think, really uh, set the stage for South Africa work. And then finally, in fact, she did go to the South in 1949. And this is also important because in the 30s, she traveled through the South. And really the moment that politicized her was traveling with the writer Erskine Caldwell Mm -hmm. in the South in 1936 and 1937. And uh, together they wrote a book called... Uh, you Have Seen Their Faces, mm-hmm. which in many ways has been shoved aside by the legacy of A.G. and um, Walker Evans's book, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, but at the time was actually much more popular than Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, and in fact uh, pushed Let Us Now Praise Famous famous men kind of out of the way uh, and was a story in Fortune or Life magazine in the late 30s. So she was very familiar with poverty in the American South and she went back in 1949 to document what she saw as the changes. And, you know, one could be critical of this, but that story, which appeared in the October 1949 Life magazine, was very hopeful pointing to what she saw as the changes in the South and the coming possibilities of desegregation. And she has a photograph, for instance, of an integrated steel workers' union, which mm-hmm. we produce mm-hmm. in the book. So she was very much primed for thinking about what was happening in South Africa uh, – from a comparative perspective about what she saw as the potential progress. Certainly for her, measuring 1937 against 1949 in the American South, she really saw some dramatic changes.
0: And so what did she do when she was there? What were the results of her time um, spent spent there photographing?
1: Well, it's very interesting. First of all, she was not someone who would just, you know, drop into a place, take a few pictures and then leave. So she Mm -hmm. spent four and a half months in South Africa, uh, and really, I think, got to know the country, talked to a lot of different people, traveled everywhere. I mean, to the degree that we can retrace her steps, she really saw everything from the the diamond coast of the Northern Cape to KwaZulu-Natal, uh, to the depths of a mine in Johannesburg, to wine farms in the Western Cape. So she really, she went everywhere. Uh, What's interesting is her first story, the very first place she arrives, the very first day she's there is December 16th, 1949. So people who know South African history will know, first of all, December 16th is this crucial date That marks the birth of Afrikaner nationalism. Mm -hmm. It corresponds to the Battle of Blood River, which is this kind of mythical moment in in Afrikaner nationalist history, dating back to 1838. Uh, And in 1949, December 16th, 1949, was the moment in which the Afrikaner nationalist monument, the Fortrekker monument, was inaugurated. So this was the great physical embodiment of Afrikaner nationalism and their triumph, both over British uh, residents of South Africa and over Africans. And that was inaugurated on December 16th, 1949. And she's there for that event, which there are 250,000 Afrikaners. And she photographs that event. And the first story she publishes in, in Life magazine is really about white South Africans and Afrikaners in particular and Afrikaner nationalism. And on the one hand, you know, some of it's quite critical, but also some of it is, if not friendly, at least respectful. But going back to the archives, it was clear to me that she did this quite deliberately so that she could then go uh, and have her hosts welcome her to see the things mm-hmm. that she really wanted to see. So, Quite extraordinary for her to be able to, for any journalist, let alone a female journalist, to take photographs at the bottom of a gold mine shaft in Johannesburg in 1950. Quite extraordinary for her to be able to go visit um, a camp where prison labor was being exploited on the farms of the eastern Transvaal. And again, this is something obviously of interest to me because of what I've written about, but it's something she had photographed in the South in the 1930s, that is mm-hmm. chain gang laborers. Mm-hmm. So amazing that she got access to that. Quite extraordinary that she was able to photograph child laborers on the wine farms of the Western Cape. Um, so she got access to, once she won the trust, essentially, of her white hosts, then she got access to just about anything she wanted to photograph. Um, so rallies led by the Communist Party, labor in all sorts of different settings. She got inside a, uh, the Rand Refinery, which is a, the place where the gold was actually poured. Um, so more access, I would say, than just about anyone else at the time had been able to get to kind of the inside heart of apartheid, particularly its labor relations, which is what Rick and I naturally were most interested in.
0: Right. So, if we could um, back up just a tiny bit, and this might be a little bit off off the the track that that we're going down right now, but I'm curious to know Life Magazine's role in all of this. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what photojournalism and you know journalism writ large at this time was was how it was really functioning, but it seems like they sort of funded her and said go and report back. Is that sort of what happened? I mean, what I th- what was I the state of things at this I, point? I
1: think that's true. I mean, I think you know we need to understand Life Magazine as the main visual source of news at Mm -hmm. the time, right? I mean, this is obvious, of course, to to most of us, but I certainly emphasize this for students. I mean, there really is no good visual source of the news until Life magazine comes along, and it's first published in 1936. And, in fact, Bork White has the cover image, which is a photograph of of Fort Peck Dam, I think, in in Montana, or Missouri, Montana, yeah. So for... In this period, let's say the 30s, the 40s, and the early 50s, if people, or Americans anyway, were going to imagine what the world looked like, Life magazine was their window onto that world. Uh Now, there's plenty of scholarship that's quite critical of Life magazine because, of course, it was run by Henry Luce Mm -hmm. of the American century. This is hardly a popular front or left liberal magazine. Yet, on the other hand, it employs this extraordinary cohort of photojournalists who, you know, are kind of set loose. Now, it's true that Bork White did not have total editorial control. So she would go, she would take hundreds of photographs, she would send them back to New York, and the editors would choose the photographs, and they would even write the captions. Sometimes she would make Mm -hmm. suggestions, sometimes she would... Um, Register complaints, but for the most part, she was providing the images and the life editorial staff uh, writers was were providing the words. And so if you go look at these stories, for instance, they don't have a byline. The byline is photographs by Margaret Bork There is no writer byline. Mm-hmm. The writer is the editorial staff. So it's, it's an interesting format with a mix of control that sometimes will reinforce Cold War assumptions. And other times may undermine them. So <clears throat> to give you a sense, that you, when you read the story, on the one hand, you get a sense that there is protest and opposition to apartheid growing in South Africa. On the other hand, there's absolutely no mention of the fact that this is led by the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. So that strikes me as a nice example of both. I mean, certainly life, you know, the, the story was called South Africa and its Problem. So, uh, as problem the, uh, uh, yes, so... Problem singular. Yes, yeah. the problem mm-hmm. being racism and yeah. apartheid. So it's quite clear that Life magazine as an editorial entity uh, found apartheid obnoxious. On the other hand, this was in conjunction with, in some ways, making the United States dealing with its quote-unquote problem uh, look good, right? Mm. So in other words, well, see over there, they are having deeper racial problems. Here in the U.S., we're changing our Jim Crow system. Mm. So you can read it either way. But certainly, Bork White uh, had exposure to kind of the the, uh, particular political movement, which then did not appear in the pages of Life magazine, particularly its association with the left. Mm -hmm. And that was her, to the degree that she had access to protest in South Africa it's clear to me that that access was granted by her familiarity with with the left particularly the communist left and she had contacts in india as well it's one of the things that i mean this is a sideline but it's quite remarkable the fbi was all over her all the time and <laughs> trying to find evidence of her communist uh, affiliations. And in the about 54, 55, you know, she has to kind of write a letter to the FBI disavowing any interest in communism and denying all of her ties to popular front organizations in the 30s, some of which, you know, the denials were plausible, others which she flat out just lied, you know, understandably. Mm-hmm. Uh, her attorney was Morris Ernst. Uh, of the ACLU fame, uh, but for some reason the FBI never found what was hiding in plain sight, which was that when she was in, in India in 1946 and 1947, her guide partner and interlocutor who took her around was a guy named Sunil Jana, who was the CPI, the Communist Party of India, photographer. Uh-huh. The FBI never it's not in her file. Uh. So it's really strange. I mean, if they were looking for evidence of communist ties, uh, he's the one, or when she's in South Africa, she's photographing and discussing sympathetically the anti-apartheid movement with, Youssef Dadu, who is uh, the head of the South African Indian Congress and a central member of the South African Communist Party. So one doesn't quite know what the FBI was, was doing. I mean, they obviously they were only looking for domestic ties, and those are sure. much harder to demonstrate.
0: Right, right. And so how did her work on South Africa ultimately resonate? It's interesting how you mentioned that, um, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about this, how her photos in some ways were juxtaposed against what was happening in the United States to say, oh, we're not so bad. You know, we're, we're taking care of this. So can you talk a little bit more about what impacts, um, you know, her, her work had?
1: You know, I, I wish I actually knew it's a little hard to trace. I mean, Uh the truth is, so in the immediate, you know, immediately after without access to the life archives, which are hard to get, it's hard to know. There were a few published letters, Mm -hmm. one saying, uh, oh, you're you're exaggerating, it's not so bad, these aren't slaves, they are being paid. The miners, for instance, another saying, thank you for showing that not only communists uh, oppose apartheid. So those were kind of interesting letters. Uh-huh. You know, but my sense is that actually apartheid doesn't become a big issue on the American political scene for another 10 or 15 years, probably not until Sharpeville, which is – 1960. So, uh, I mean, the the truth is I think this kind of didn't have a huge impact at the time. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but it's not as if you saw dozens and dozens of stories following in, in its train. Now, certainly mm-hmm. the black press was covering it. Certainly the left press was covering it. But, uh, you know, and I, I suppose this is follow-up research I should do, but I don't think there are Tons of exposés of apartheid in the 1950s American mainstream press anyway. On the other hand, it sort of had a second life. It kept cropping up. And the most interesting aspect of this is that we discovered uh, uh, that that particular iconic photograph of the two miners keeps coming back. It's been repurposed and recirculated in many different places. Two that struck me, one, there's a pamphlet published in 1973 by a black workers organizing uh, campaign in Detroit called From Detroit to Durban, linking, and here's where these linkages begin to, to show, linking the black power insurgencies in Detroit's auto factories of the 60s and 70s to the mass, African workers' strikes that were breaking out in Durban, South Africa, in 1973. And the cover of that pamphlet uses uh, Bork White's image of the two miners from a quarter century before. Mm -hmm. And then most recently in South Africa, uh, people may know, there was this massacre of platinum miners in 2012 Mm -hmm. by you know, the ANC government. And uh, one of the left magazines in South Africa, I think it's called Amandla, uh, ran a special issue on the mining industry. And they used as the cover repurposed image of these two miners. Mm. Uh, So that became an iconic image of sort of mine work and uh, resistance Mm -hmm. to exploitation in the mines that has been repurposed and recycled. But in terms of its actual effect in the 1950s, uh, I mean, regrettably, I don't think it had that this story, I don't think, had that powerful an effect. And in part, that was one of the reasons that Rick and I wanted to resuscitate it. We felt these Mm -hmm. photographs had been kind of forgotten and that Bork White's uh, political commitments had kind of been forgotten and, and dismissed, or at least overshadowed by the emphasis on her truly spectacular, but nevertheless, aestheticized portraits Of machinery. If you go Mm -hmm. to a Bork White exhibit, they're usually about her photos from the 20s and the 30s of steel mills, of uh, dams, of power turbines, some in the Soviet Union, some in the US, but very rarely of people. And so she's got this, I think, unfair rap as well. Unlike the FSA photographers, she wasn't interested in social photography. She wasn't interested in photographing human beings, just machinery. And that's simply not true.
0: Right. As a labor historian as a US historian, could you talk a little bit about where you think that there are opportunities to do kind of transnational history mm. right yeah. now? Um you know, I think that it you know in a lot of ways there's a, a greater recognition within the profession that more work needs to be done in connecting the history of the United States especially in areas like race, class, um, labor to histories of other places around the globe. And the Atlantic world in some ways has kind of become the star of that. And in some ways that was breaking new historiographical ground, uh, you know, five years ago, and now it's kind of the thing to do. So, you know, I'm wondering what you see as, as potential in, in that realm as a labor historian, as a historian of race and class.
1: In the South African case in, in particular? In the South or? African case, yeah. really
0: generally, I mean, in South Africa or even more broadly, um, you know, you mentioned, um, uh, Bork White's work in India in, you know, yeah. travel to Russia, you know, wh- what do you think, it, you know, would be interesting fodder for for new research?
1: Well, I do think looking at individuals like Bork White or uh, or organizations such as the Phelps Stoke Foundation um, or the Carnegie Foundation that are generating these sort of comparative studies at the time. So again, I think it's Tiffany Willoughby-Herd's work on whiteness that looks at how the The uh, Carnegie Foundation did a study of poor whites in South Africa in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And certainly the Phelps Stoke Foundation, which is very involved in doing research on Southern American poverty, then also had projects in South Africa. And there's plenty of traffic. So here we're talking in the interwar period, plenty of traffic and connections between... I don't know, the Commission on Interracial Cooperation and the South African Institute of Race Relations, kind of liberal racial reform organization. So that's mm-hmm. one area. Then obviously the left was internationalist in its orientation. I mean, Glenda Gilmore shown some of these connections in the 30s right. between the, the South African and U.S. Uh, communist orbit. Um then if you look, I think there's plenty of interesting work to be done in the connections between black power and black consciousness. I mean, some of it's going on, but there's there's a circulation of ideas and literature. I mean, if you look at uh, Steve Biko's uh, I Write What I Like, I mean, passages of it are clearly uh, lifted directly from Stokely Carmichael's uh, Black Power. So that means that Stokely Carmichael's book was was circulating in South Africa in the late 60s. And I think you can probably find more examples of that. And then in terms of labor history, and again, the South African case... Uh, And I dug into this and thought about writing about it, but I just have been so caught up in the South African story, I haven't pursued it. But there are lots of interesting – on the one hand, the AFL-CIO is very bad on South Africa Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. until the 1980s. They really come around very late to supporting the anti-apartheid movement for what are fairly obvious reasons, which is that the the wing of the South African trade union movement that was fundamentally opposed to apartheid in the government – was associated with the left with the world federation of trade unions and with the communist left and therefore the AFL CIO would have nothing to do with it so they're casting about in the 60s and the 70s and even the early 1980s for you know what they imagined to be the liberal white wing of the trade union movement in South Africa. And it's just diluted, essentially. But So that's an interesting history to trace, certainly. I mean, some people have have done some of this. Um, John Stoner, I think, has. Uh, But there's a lot of interesting connections at the more local level. So, for example... The Textile Workers Union in South Africa, which is, emerges after the 1973 strikes, has some direct links with their counterparts. I can't remember which. What you might know, actually, what the union would be in the 70s and the 80s. ACTWU, maybe, mm-hmm, right? Um, and Bruce Rayner and people like that are directly traveling. So, so for example. The Textile Workers Union in South Africa, the new one, the radical one, the National Union of Textile Workers, in the early 80s sends delegates to the United States to meet with their counterparts in the Textile Union in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are many more examples of that. Um, or uh, Peter Cole is doing some research on the connections between dock workers in Durban and San Francisco, mm. comparing them, but also seeing how there are solidarity connections. So I think looking at the local level and at particular unions, and then of course, um, you know, trade union uh, councils in various urban areas worked hard within the anti apartheid movement. And when we look at the history of the anti apartheid movement in the United States, Tends to focus on the churches and universities. There's really is not uh, good work on trade union anti-apartheid mm-hmm. activism mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s, and that would be very interesting to to dig up. So, I think those sort of activist connections are are intriguing and and still need to be run down a bit.
0: Right, and so what? What's next for you? What do you have on your docket for your for your next project, or for more on this book? Are you doing any? Um exhibits of the the
1: well actually like i'm glad you asked that so th- this is an interesting thing so this book grew out of an exhibit oh
0: okay I didn't necessarily okay.
1: know it was going to be a book and uh-huh. i did an exhibit of, of these bork white photographs and actually there is a website as well if you just google margaret bork white south africa i created a wordpress website okay. and based we can, li- on, we
0: can link to that for
1: for you yes that'd yeah, be great okay. so based on um the exhibit so this first was an exhibit at uh, Indiana University's Mathers Museum of World Cultures. And then I was very fortunate to get funding to take it to South Africa, oh, okay. where it was exhibited in Johannesburg and Cape Town and Durban. And so, so many people said, well, where's the catalog? Right. And I thought, well, you know, Rick and I have been kicking around this idea for a long time. So, I got him on board and, and we decided to do do this book, which expanded the material that was in the exhibit. So, but it's very very expensive because getty images owns the rights uh-huh. to all these photographs so every time there's an ex- exhibition you know we have to pay so i don't think there's going to be another exhibit i sure. have the rights for the book and so that will circulate i'm going to do a follow up article i think that connects her photographs in india particularly of child laborers mm-hmm to the South African work. But this was a side project, really. And really what I'm engaged in is in South African history are two things right now. One is kind of a sweeping history of industrial relations under apartheid. That Mm -hmm. is, how did the apartheid state structure industrial relations for African workers? How did we tend to focus on labor flows, that is the pass laws and recruitment of mine workers and so forth. But there's a whole interesting legal apparatus of shop floor regulations and rules for African workers, quite restrictive, naturally enough, but also something that, that black workers were able to use. And that system changes over the years. So I'm really going to look at the interface between apartheid labor law and black worker organizing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then, of course, by the 80s, black trade unions become instrumental, really, in the overthrow of apartheid. And the denouement, unfortunately, is quite tragic in that now the ANC has essentially subordinated the interests of the black working class to their own particular project, which is why you get the Americana massacre in, in 2012. So that's a big Project And it's no longer comparative, which is Mm -hmm. what I imagined it was. It really is about, uh, it's called Making Apartheid Work. And it's really about industrial relations under apartheid. But the other thing I'm working on and trying to do is there's a particular moment in this trajectory called the Durban moment, 1973, where there are essentially mass strikes in the city of Durban, Mm -hmm. 100,000 workers during the year uh, that, set a new agenda for the black working class and that helped make the black trade union movement, which till till then had been rather supine, uh, helped make the black trade union movement absolutely central to the anti apartheid struggle inside the country, inside the country. And of course, forming solidarity links outside, Uh, And that's a very interesting moment because it really is geographically specific. It's linked to the emergence of a particular kind of white left Mm -hmm. at the University of Natal Durban, around a kind of Pied Piper figure named Richard Turner, Rick Turner. Uh, It's connected to Zulu nationalism because that's a part of the country with a powerful current of Zulu nationalism. Uh, it's connected to Black consciousness because Steve Biko is also there, and it's connected to this upsurge in the factories uh, in these general strikes in 1973. So that's called commonly the Durban moment, and so I'm very eager to write, you know, a short, accessible book that talks about the confluence of all those factors at this crucial moment. Uh, And to kind of shift attention in the history of the anti-apartheid movement, most people know the crucial moment is 1976 and the Mm -hmm. Soweto Mm -hmm. revolt and the students' revolt. Uh, And that's very important. But that's overshadowed what I think is actually equally important, which is the 1973 strikes and the Durban moment. So I kind of want to re-elevate that to to cardinal importance in the anti-apartheid struggle.
0: Okay, well great. Well, we're going to be looking forward to um all of that, all of that interesting interesting work coming coming out of South Africa. So Alex Lichtenstein, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History.
1: Thank you very much, Beth. My pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Alex Lichtenstein, Associate Professor of History at Indiana University and co-author with Rick Halpern of the new book, Margaret Bourke-White and the Dawn of Apartheid, published by Indiana University Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.